When the time had fully come, God sent his Son into the world to free us from the clutches of sin so that he could adopt us as his sons and daughters. Morning. Happy Easter. Great to see all of you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors around here. So if I say he is risen, do you know what to say? Oh, we can do better than that. He is risen. Nice work. Way to go. Could we thank our band and our choirs and the folks who shared testimonies on those videos? Yeah. Beautiful, powerful, life-changing stuff. Thank you for sharing all that. And we are gathered here today on what is the crux day in the history of humankind. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge upon which all of the rest of human history swings. And every story, at least every good story, has its crux moment. And right now some of you are like, what is this word crux? What does it mean? Well, the definition of the word crux is a main or central feature, an essential point. Something in a story that resolves an outcome. How many of you are movie people in the room? You, you like, seriously, like 17 of you raised your, how many of you like movies? You can, yeah, okay, good job, nice job. I'm, I'm a big movie fan, and there's some crux films, and there's some, like, crux images from some of those crux films, like this one right here, see if you recognize this, what film is that? Yeah, the ti- Titanic and Jack and Rose, you know, and, and Rose says, I'll, I'll never let go, Jack. I'll never let go. And then she like shoves him off the door and he floats to the bottom and dies. Crux moment. How about that? What's, what's that? Shawshank Redemption. Number two ranked film of all time, by the way. Number two best film of all time, according to IMDb. Like this movie? I love that movie. Yeah, it's a great. How about, yeah, who voted for Pedro? That's what I want to know. Who voted for Pedro? Napoleon Dynamite. What about this one? Right here. Oh my gosh. Some of you would have shot me if I didn't put that one up there. You're like, Star Wars has to go up there. One of my favorite films of all time. Life is like a box of chocolates. Some of you have no idea what movie this is. Children, you can ask your parents if you can watch. It's, it's an old horror movie. <laughs> what about this one right here? If I say E.T., yeah, some of you know. Some of the rest of you can go watch that one. How about this one? Gladiator, great film. This one, Crocs film, right? Braveheart. And then this one, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. And then one of the best movies of all time right here. (laughs) Christmas Vacation. Oh, Clark, look at the love in Ellen's eyes. And just like any good film, any good story, there's a crux moment. And the story of God's interaction with humankind also has these crux moments, these main central features, these essential points, these points that resolve an outcome. And the crux of the story of God and humanity all begins with this truth that number one, first crux of the day, God loves. There's five, by the way. God loves. God loves. I know for lots of people, this one can be difficult to get our arms around. We've all had stuff happen in our lives in the lives of people who we love very deeply that causes us to scratch our heads and go, would a good and loving God really allow that to happen? I, I get it. I totally get it. I've got all of the same questions that you do. Difficult things cause people's perception of God to be that he's not loving, 
a whole bunch of the time. Quite the opposite, actually. I'm not a big video game player. I just don't have time. I, I do pull out my phone on occasion, play a little solitaire. If I have a spare minute, once in a while, I'll play a little game of Wordament. You know this game is kind of like Boggle on here, competing with people all around the world. But I ran across a game the other day that caught my eye. It's called Pocket God. Ever heard of this one? Po- Pocket God. Now, don't go get it right now. Whatever you do. Like, this is not the time. Just let me talk about this. Pocket God. And I saw this thing, and that's one of the scenes from the game. And I'm a pastor, and I saw this Pocket God thing, and I said, well, I should know about this, right? I'm kind of in the God business, if you were. So I go to the app store, and I was reading about it. Here's the description from the app store. What kind of God would you be, is the question. Benevolent or vengeful? Play pocket God and discover the answer within yourself. And then it goes on. On a remote island, you are the all-powerful God that rules over the primitive islanders. You can bring new life and then take it away just as quickly. Exercise your powers on the islanders. Lift them in the air, alter gravity, hit them with lightning. You're the island God. Whoa. And that's a whole bunch of people's view of God right there. And so I spent 99 cents. I downloaded the game. I've been playing it a bit just so I could talk about it with you. And it is such a twisted game. I mean, it is messed up, right? Like you pinch the sun and you make it really small and then it makes it really cold on the island and then the islanders turn into little ice cubes and they just fall apart into little pieces all over the ground or, or you pinch the sun and make it bigger and then it gets so hot that the little islander people, they like spontaneously combust, burst into flames. And then the, there's this one scene, some of you are downloading it right now, stop downloading it right now. <laughs> There's, there's this round thing in one of the scenes. I was like, what is that thing? So, you know, I'm like messing with it, trying to figure out what it is. It's a magnifying glass. And you can concentrate the rays of the sun onto the little islander people, just like you used to do with ants when you were a little kid. Remember that? You pick up the, it's sick. It's so twisted. You plunge the islanders into the sea. The sharks swim by and eat them. It's gross. Don't play the game. Don't play the game. But that's the perception that so many people have of God. That's it. That he's vengeful, that he's angry, that he's despotic, even. But I want us together here today to set the record straight, to correct the record. Because that's not at all who God is. Psalm 86, 15 puts it like this. But you, O Lord, check it out, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. That's who God is, compassionate Merciful, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Crux number one is that God loves and he loves you. He loves you. Another crux of the story of God and us is that Jesus died. And he died on the first Good Friday for you. So he loves you and then he died for you. And there are a whole bunch of people in this world who say, well, I don't need Jesus to die for me. I've led a good life, I've held a steady job, I pay my bills, I pay my taxes, people respect me. I don't need anybody dying for me. It's not necessary, I got this. But if you just take the most quick heart examination, what would be revealed is humanity's, not just yours, I'm not just picking on you here, but all of humanity's deep-seated heart disease. It's pandemic, Actually, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9 from the message translation, all of us, okay? So this is like all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one. 
nobody who knows the score, nobody alert for God. And, and here it says they, but we could put in the word we. We've all taken the wrong turn. We've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. Vivid imagery. Every word they speak is tinged with poison. They open their mouths and pollute the air. They race for the honor of sinner of the year. Litter the land with heartbreak and ruin. Don't know the first thing about living with others. They never give God the time of day. Pandemic. Did you know in our world that we let 25,000 people die every single day due to hunger, hunger-related causes? Most of them, small children. That means that every three and a half seconds, every three and a half seconds, someone dies. 15 people dying every minute from hunger or hunger-related causes around the world. And I go, that, that's my heart. Right? Like, that's a heart problem with me that I let that happen. You look at the 20th century and you see that we had more slaughters than any other century in all of human history. Wars and genocides stole the lives, get this, of more than 200 million souls in just 100 years. 200 million souls in 100 years wiped off the face of the earth. Wars and genocides. Things like what happened this week, Bob talked about it a few minutes ago in Brussels. Right? Innocent people, what are they doing? They're waiting for subways and airplanes. That's all they're doing. And they get slaughtered. That's humanity's heart problem. It's a universal heart problem. All of us are tainted with the heart problem. It's universal, but get this too. It's also very, very personal. I'd like us together to take a little inventory. How many of you, show of hands, would admit that you are a good person? Just, just show, show of hands. You're, you're good. Yeah, we're all good people. Every hand should be up. Okay, Every hand should be up. We're, we're good people, right? No guilt trips. Come on. We're all good people. We ought to then, because we're good people, we ought to score pretty well when measuring our lives against something as simple as maybe the Ten Commandments, right? We're all good people. We ought to score pretty well. So let's just look at four of them together. The first one, don't steal. But how many of us have stolen, you don't have to raise your hand on this, how many of us have stolen something? Maybe a paperclip or a pen or maybe a parking space? Yeah. Second one, don't lie. Don't lie, but if you say that you haven't lied, you just lied. Right? Number three, they get like increasingly more heavy. Don't commit adultery. Whoa. And here's what Jesus says. He says, if you even look at a person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Boom, right? And then the last one, really heavy. Don't murder. And we all hear that when we're like, never done that, but what's Jesus say? Anyone who's so much as angry with a brother or sister, guilty of what? Murder, he says. Which, here's what that means. You may well have assassinated people right out here in our parking lot on Easter Sunday. <laughs> Assassinating people out there. How'd you do? Just four. How'd you do? I am just, here's me, thieving. I am a thieving, lying, adulterous murderer. Okay, that's me. Now, compare your heart to Jesus. John 8, 46. Can any one of you, this is Jesus talking, can any one of you convict me of a single misleading word, a single sinful act? And they couldn't. 
Not a chance. Jesus' enemies had to trump up charges so that they could even arrest him. Pilate, the highest ranking official in the region, found him not guilty. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, someone who spent more time with him than anyone else, said in 1 Peter 2.22, he never did one thing wrong, not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book, and he said nothing back. Jesus was perfect. Absolutely perfect, which perfectly qualified him to take all of our sin, all of humanity's sin upon himself, upon the cross, where he died for us. And here's Ephesians 1, 7. Here's what Paul writes. He is so rich. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. Jesus died. That's crux. And then we move to point number three, which this one is like the crux of the crux of the crux of the story of God and humanity. The hinge, like I said a few minutes ago, upon which everything else in the history of humankind swings, Jesus is what? Risen. Jesus is risen. And I know, believe me, I know the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a totally audacious claim. When was the last time you saw somebody who was dead walk out of the door of a funeral home? Right? We, we hope and wish that it would happen, but it just doesn't. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he, that's Jesus, was buried in the ground, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. It seems totally outrageous, but it is entirely true. Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. Now, if you ask any Christian, what's the greatest thing that Jesus did for you? Quickly. Like in an instant, our answer is, he died on the cross for me, right? And that's absolutely true, but get this, it's only half the story. Jesus did die on the cross, but then three days later, he rose from the dead. And this is a real personal thing, a little rant of mine, I'm not trying to make it yours, just putting this on the record. If this is why I dislike crucifixes so very much, I don't care if they're big ones, little ones, around our neck ones, hanging on wall crucifixes, I don't like crucifixes, why? Because they leave Jesus hanging on the cross. Like perpetually, just leave him on the cross. And that's not the story. Not even close to the whole story. The cross is empty, just like the tomb is empty because Jesus lives. He's alive. He's risen. And the disciples who were Jesus' very closest friends, they saw him after he was risen. And it changed them dramatically changed them. They went from hiding out after Jesus' death on Friday to becoming the very boldest proclaimers of the truth about who Jesus Christ is and was. They were so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, most of them, they were eventually martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, killed for their belief, killed for their proclamation of who Jesus was and everything that they had seen, which was him living after he had been killed. And how many people do you know in this world who would die for a lie? I don't know any. I don't know any. Jesus is risen. And he offers us the very same power of God that raised him from the dead, the same power to redeem our lives, redeem our sin, redeem whatever mess that it is we're facing. It's available to us. That very same power is available to us, crux number four, when we believe. When we believe, it's available to us. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 10, 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. You will be saved. 
Our redemption and salvation comes when and only when we believe. But for a whole bunch of people, that just seems far too simple. Believe? That's it? We're much more prone to pursue other methods like working and proving and showing and earning. We love that one, don't we? Seems like I should have to do a whole lot more than just believe. You mean to tell me I find forgiveness by believing in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. That's the story. There isn't anything more complicated to it, but we expect that there should be. Shouldn't we have to conjure up some remedy for our sin? Not a chance. Anything we conjured up, it wouldn't work anyway. Believe him and trust him to do what we don't have a chance of doing ourselves. Just a little side note about faith and believing. You and I, without even paying much attention to it, we take big, bold steps of belief and trust, steps of faith, all the time, every single day. For example, you had great faith that the brakes on the car that you drove here this morning would work, didn't you? And how many of you know perfectly well how the braking system of an automobile works? We have some general idea. A few of us might know, mechanically inclined ones. But what we do know is that when I push this brake pedal down, the car's going to slow down and the car's going to stop. And it, and it worked, didn't it? It absolutely. Anybody get in a rack on the way here? Just want to make sure the illustration holds up. It worked. Then you walked into this room and you had faith that the chair that you're sitting in right now would support you. So you sat down and I'll bet nobody, I'll bet not a single one of you tested the chair first. You didn't do it. You just sat down. The last time you went on a trip, you may have gotten on an airplane and you had great faith that that airplane would carry you safely from point A to point B and back again. And you don't really understand how aerodynamics and lift and all that stuff, right? And it worked. We exercise our faith muscles all of the time without even thinking about it. One guy said it like this. You and I regularly trust power we cannot see to do a work that we can accomplish. And Jesus invites us to do the very same, exact same thing with him. Believe. And when you believe, when you cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ, as we like to say around here, number five, crux number five, is new life is ours because of Jesus Christ. New life is ours because of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 21, Jesus gives us just a glimpse of what new life in him is meant to look like and be about. Let me set up the scene for you. A few of Jesus' closest followers and friends have gone down to the Sea of Galilee. It's not long at all after Jesus had been killed. And Peter says something. Do you remember what it is that he said? I'm going Fishing, that's exactly right. Some of you fishermen, you remember that well. I'm going fishing. Which, by the way, is Peter reverting back to his former way of life. Reverting back to everything that he knew before he met Jesus. Before Jesus changed his life and set him about fishing for men. Which, by the way, it's never a good thing to move backwards. What's Peter thinking? I'm going fishing? And the other disciples, they look at Peter, they see him as something of a leader, and they're like, okay, I guess we'll tag along, and so they go out fishing. They get in the boat, they go out fishing, and they fish all night long, all night. And what happened? They caught nothing. They caught absolutely nothing. Another reason we don't go backwards, there's no productivity in former ways of living. There is no productivity in former ways of living. And so it's very early the next morning. They're thinking about heading into shore. They've been skunked, and there's Jesus. He's standing on the shore of the sea. The disciples, they don't recognize him, however. 
To them, it's just a guy on the shore. And this guy on the shore, who they don't know who he is, yells out to them, hey guys, you catch anything? And he's smiling. He's like mocking them, right? You guys catch anything? Because he knows. And they're hanging their heads. They've been skunked. They're professional fishermen. They fish all night. They've got nothing. And here's a guy standing on the shore, yelling that out for everyone to see. And they're like, no, and could you stop talking about it? It's really embarrassing all these other people know that we caught nothing. We're losers. And so Jesus is like, hey, throw your net over there. Throw your net over there. And they're like, oh my gosh. Now he's really mocking us. He's going to get us. I throw our nets over there. Nothing's going to happen. We're the professionals, but deep sigh. Okay. So they throw their net over there. And you know the story? So many fish fill that net. They can't even, and these are big, strong guys, right? It's not like six of me in the boat. Like these are big, strong guys. They can't even haul the net in because there's so many fish. Fish are like clamoring to get into the net. And one of them looks a little closer, squints. It's like, hey guys, that's Jesus over there. They recognize him. That's Jesus. And Peter's like, what, Jesus? He does this wardrobe adjustment thing, dives into the water, swims to shore. And what's Jesus do? Cooks breakfast on the beach. Breakfast on the beach. It's this incredible scene. Marvelous scene. And over the course of breakfast, Jesus scoops Peter up and takes him aside. And Jesus and Peter, they have this little conversation that defines the whole trajectory of the rest of Peter's new life. It's these questions all about Peter's love for Jesus. Three questions. Three, get this, present tense questions that point Peter toward three future tense opportunities. It's this amazing, beautiful conversation. And here's what I want you to see in here especially. Not a single time, not a single mention of Peter's past. Jesus never brings up Peter's past never brings up Peter's past. Because you see, here's the deal. New life with Jesus Christ isn't about your past. It's not about your failures. It's not about your yesterdays. Get that? New life with Jesus Christ isn't about your past, your failures, or your yesterdays. Instead, new life with Jesus Christ is all about you and me being set free from our past so that our future can be everything that God intends for it to be. Set free, purchased freedom. By Jesus Christ. Friends, the crux of every single thing in this life starts with God loving, Jesus dying, Jesus rising, we believe, and the new life with him today can be ours. And I believe today, friends, that Jesus is trying to get your attention regarding his invitation to you, every single one of us, to believe in him, to step into new life with him, to receive God's forgiveness, to leave your past in the past and step into the new life that God has for you. Could I ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would please? And perhaps today, maybe for lots and lots of us, for the very first time, you're coming face to face with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. 
And maybe for the first time today, you're grasping the magnitude of his love and his grace and his pursuit of you. Maybe today for the very first time, you're grasping your desperate need of his forgiveness. The forgiveness that cures our heart sickness. And perhaps today is the day for you to believe in him. Perhaps today is the day for you to believe in him, to come home to him. And if that's you, I'd invite you right where you're sitting to pray with me. Say, Jesus, I get it. Man, I get it. Only you can save me, Jesus. And so Jesus, I believe. By faith and faith alone, I believe and I received your gift of salvation. Please be my Savior, Jesus. Thank you so much for your death on the cross. Thank you so much that you didn't stay dead, that you rose from the grave that first Easter Sunday. All to save me. Here I am, all of me, trusting you with my everything, King Jesus. And that decision to believe in Jesus Christ is like the biggest decision of your whole life. And so, King Jesus, we say thank you so much that you died on that first Good Friday. And thank you more, Jesus, that you rose on that first Easter Sunday. Thank you. We placed our trust. We placed our belief. We placed all of our faith in you and everything that you've accomplished. And God, send us out. We don't just want to hold on to that message for ourselves. We want to give it away and give it away and give it away. And so, King Jesus, would you help us do that to be conduits of your good news to the rest of the world, please? Pointing the rest of the world to you as their Savior. Use us, please, Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.